This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. It's time to take command with former NFL tight end Logan Paulson and former Commander's Beat reporter Craig Hoffman. Welcome in. Take command. I'm Craig Hoffman. Covered, of course, the Washington Commanders uh, from 2015 to uh, 2020-ish. Now do the pregame show. All kinds of different stuff. Uh, Logan is actually going to join us in just a moment. I'm going to start the the podcast today with his cousin, uh, with Grant Paulson. It's actually not his cousin, but that's that's fine. That's neither here nor there. The reason being, um, our main story today, now with Logan, we're going to talk about the running back position. He's doing a deep dive on the tape. Uh, we'll get into some Monday mailbag questions as well. But the main story in Commander's Land today is the story from USA Today over the weekend about the NFL owner's potentially starting to count votes to oust Daniel Snyder uh, based off of waves hands wildly all of the things that have happened. And with Logan being under contract, working for the team, don't want to have any kind of conflict of interest where he doesn't feel like he can give his full opinion or anything else. So instead of having Logan thread that needle... We're just going to have Grant come on, talk about it. Obviously, Grant's covered the league for a long time, been hosting Grant and Danny now for a long time. <laughs> uh, afternoons, 2 to 6, uh, 30 on 106.7 The Fan. So with that, Grant, thanks for coming on. Thanks for doing this with me. Uh, these stories are never, quote-unquote, fun, but excited to talk about it with you. Yeah, I appreciate you. No one believes that Logan and I aren't actually related, which is fair because I didn't believe when I first met him. I'm like, there's a guy named Paulson playing for this team back in 2010. And it's spelled the same way because most people go S-O-N. So, yeah, I get it. But this is a big deal. I mean, whether or not there's – the report is legitimate, right? The the question is what's going to happen? Does this go anywhere? But Jared Bell is not some random person writing his first blog. This is a preeminent reporter and a terrific longtime NFL writer who's more plugged in than a microwave. So there's a lot, I think, to, to dive into here. Yeah, definitely. And to me, there's kind of two layers of this story, right? There's the surface layer, like, are they actually, quote-unquote, from the story, counting the votes to eventually dismiss Dan Snyder? But there's also a secondary layer of clear discontent within the league's ownership membership about how this was handled. And considering the whole reason why we thought this was handled poorly was because that's kind of the way the— or, Poorly in through like a public lens, right? Through what we want to know, through the, uh, the way the victims in this case, uh, like Megan Imbert, have been very publicly disappointed with how this was handled was because the owners were like, we have to keep this in house. And to me, before we get to the counting votes part, what is actually more interesting is the fact that you have an owner telling Jarrett Bell, 
We wish there was a report from the Wilkinson investigation. We wish that we had, there was more transparency. We wish there was harsher penalty for him that he was more definitively suspended, not on this taken off day-to-day operations thing. To me, that's really telling about where the league is, where the ownership group is, because we thought all along they were all in lockstep, and very clearly they are not. Yeah, so when I read this and I took these notes for this week, the, my first big takeaway was, and I thought I was just a, a smart guy, was exactly what you just said. Everyone's talking about the counting votes point of this. And to be honest, while I'm not trying to belittle that, that's not that interesting for a couple reasons. Number one, of course there are owners who are mad at Dan Snyder. He's made the Shield look bad for a long time, and it's getting worse and worse. On top of that, saying that they're counting votes just means that they're saying, hey, how would you vote? I mean, you need 24 out of 32. If they're at four or five, they're counting votes. What does that really mean, right? But th- to me, what's interesting is what you just said, which is that there are owners that are upset with the commissioner who constantly protects them and works on their behalf based on how, uh, well, how, how uh, candid he hasn't been, you know, the lack of transparency based on how protective of information of Dan Snyder and of the commanders he has been. I thought that was my, kind of the big takeaway. That's my first revel, revel um, you know, the, the first thing that gets revealed there is the revelation is that, holy crap, these guys are actually not happy that he's defending the owner. Which I think is what a lot of people think, by the way, is I would want him to do the same thing to me. So if, if I don't have any information on Snyder, the less I know, the better. That's not at least the people that Jared Bell's talking to, the way that it's going. I think that's a huge deal. They want more intel. They want to know more. They want to know what happened. They want to know about the report that hasn't been released. And I think a lot of this comes back to, as sad as this is, Craig, I think if this was just the transgressions in the workplace and some mm-hmm. of those allegations, and I'm not telling you this is how the world should work, in fact, I think it's really disappointing. But yeah. I'm not sure that that same disdain would be there. When the other owners found out he might be cooking books to keep money from them, that's an allegation he says is false, but it's being investigated right now by the FTC and the Attorney General of Virginia, that's when their radars went up and said, okay, now I'm pissed. <laughs> and I think that's what's well, happening. Right, right. And that's the thing is like, okay, who are they willing to protect? Well, when all of a sudden you know, the, the transgressions were against them, well, who yep. you're protecting in terms of the ownership group is like, well, are we going to protect the 31 that got screwed or the one that's do, that's screwing us? When he was screwing other people, they, they, I mean, I'm sure they cared, but they only cared so much. I think what's interesting, too, about this grant is, and I made this, this point when I was hosting today on 980, like, they, he has been stealing money from them whether he did it by cooking the books or not. And that, to me, was another one of the most interesting quotes from this piece is like, it's very clear that someone else in Washington would be doing better. And the owner that's quoted in the piece says like, it's clear that nobody in the market likes him. And when you have a, what should be a crown jewel franchise. And by the way, what a missed opportunity to do this when you had the rebrand happening and all of this last July before this comes out, like you could have gotten the report basically Donald Sterling did where you, you permanently suspend him from the league based off of that force a sale. And then you have someone else that can literally reboot the franchise with a new name and everything. And they, they just were like, ah, no, we're going to flush it. And then all of a sudden the cookbooks come out to me, if they had had the foresight to see what was good for their own self-interest, then nevertheless, the morally right thing to do 
we were not even in this position now where they're quote unquote counting votes. Like they're the, the lack of foresight, the lack of willingness to act, the lack of all of those things. It's like, hello, nice to meet you. I am the consequences of your actions. Yeah, totally. So the other thing in that Jared Bell piece that speaks directly to what you're saying is this quote that resonated with me from an owner where he said, this is the nation's capital. And his point was, and what he said was, this was one of the hallmark organizations in this sport. And to use a, a bad analogy, like the plane has been driven into the mountains. <laughs> right. You know, there's only rebel left here in a lot of ways. I mean, if you really legitimately remember, if you were around, I'm 34 as of a week ago. I don't remember when they were good or winning Super Bowls. I was in a diaper being held as my parents were watching those games. But I was here even when they were bad and people cared a lot. That has shifted over 20 plus years now to an apathy that is not only disappointing and and I would even say borderline devastating as someone who loves DC sports, but that is crippling to the brand, to the National Football League. It's a big, big deal. This is one of your pillars that's no longer structurally sound. Like that's a problem. So I I agree with you. That's a thing. Here's the issue, though, that really at the crux of this, it comes down to Mm. there is no precedent for voting an owner out. If you go back through the years, because I did this, there's a couple of times where owners had to sell. Jerry Richardson, who was like much older and kind of done anyway, decided he was going to sell. I think he was strong-armed into that. Um, if you go back to decades ago, Eddie DeBartolo, if you remember, yep, was involved in it. Yep. Yeah, it was, it was criminal at that time, right? But he was forced to sell, and he sold to his sister, which is like if Snyder has to give up the team and he gives it to Tanya or something like right, that. Right, exactly. So, but But my point is... That was never a vote. That was never other owners coming forward. They don't want, in my opinion, to lower the threshold. They never want to reset the bar, lowering it down. Because just look at current ownership issues right now. You have Stephen Ross, who I think is probably in hotter water with owners than Dan Snyder is at this moment with the Dolphins, to be completely frank. Uh, You have Mark Davis. There's an investigation now going into what was going on with the Raiders because his president came out after being fired and alleged a bunch of things. You have uh, Jerry Jones, who just, you know, in the last year we found out about, um, you know, the voyeurism scandal with the Cowboys Mm -hmm. where they had to pay that out. And he uh, uh, allegedly had some kid with somebody along the way. Like there have been kind of shady things going on. That's three owners. I'm not good at math. That's three out of 32. You need 24 out of 32. So my point is that's just what we found out recently. Like, what other bodies are there that we don't know about? Right, it's a bunch of rich, like, let's let's call it what it is. It's a bunch of rich white dudes. They all got skeletons in their closet. Or, like, almost exclusively rich white dudes. Rich old people, yeah, whatever it is. Like, there's no doubt that they don't want people looking into their pasts, right? And, And I understand, I get where they're coming from in that regard, but that's the reality of this. It's like, you either have to lower the threshold to do what you think is morally right or correct, or not. And so that's why I don't really believe if it has to take 24 owners booting him out, I don't think that will ever happen. I really believe that. I, I agree with you. Um, I don't feel good about saying that. Um, and nobody's going to be like, yeah, all right, Team Snyder. Uh, that's not what we're saying. But like, I agree with you for the exact reasons that you've laid out. But I will say a little bit devil's advocate, but also just like trying to suss out what this means, that this is the thing I'm about to explain. We've now seen owners go not on the record with their names, but anonymously, at least on the record, with direct quotes to a reporter about Snyder. And we've def- 
definitively seen a change in Goodell's demeanor towards this, right? Like, starting at the Super Bowl press conference, the annual State of the League press conference, he was much harsher in his language about Washington and about Snyder than he was in defending Dan when he didn't release the report and all that kind of stuff. And I am curious what that means. Like, what is, whether it's the financial stuff that actually would potentially force a vote, and, and that is the one thing where I think, like, hey, if you steal from the rest of us, you have to go. That bar isn't really being moved. I feel like that's established, and, and that could be a thing that gets 24 votes. But right. is it because that's floating in the background? Is it because of the public reaction? It is a lot, as, as people have learned more and more stuff has continued to come out, and Snyder's been directly implicated, allegedly, of doing things. Like, are there other more owners that have stacked on the, like, hey, that dude needs to go or needs to face more sanctions side? Like, I want to know why the tenor has changed. I want to know what dam has broken that people are willing to publicly, whether in Goodell's case, like, lay it out there in a press conference or with other owners saying anonymously behind the scenes, why have people been more willing to be publicly critical of Snyder? Because clearly something has changed behind the scenes. There's a dam that is broken. There's a threshold that's been reached of like whether it's the number of owners that are, are there now on that team. I want to know those details because there's something there. Yeah, I think it's twofold probably for Goodell. The first thing is at some point you have to get tired of dealing with this. Yeah. And you, you're constantly answering and defending, really, let's call it what it is, for what the commanders have done. And it's it's not all in real time. Like, the people over there now are trying their best, and they're doing a pretty good job, it seems like. But it's still exhausting. It doesn't matter if it's four years ago, six years ago, 12 years ago. If we're finding out now, these are things you have to answer to. So I think at some point, it's just the, the more water you put into this 50-gallon bucket— and it's getting closer and closer to tipping over, the more annoyed Goodell's going to get. I think that's part of it. But there has to be a changing of the guard just in terms of the quantity of the owners in his ear. That's, I think, what this is, if I had to guess. Now, again, I would be stunned if it was close to 24. Let's say it's five owners, seven owners, eight owners, whatever it is. 16 would be half the league and still not close to 24. Exactly. So whatever number it is, if they're vocal, because think about it. The owner group is like a high school cafeteria from how it's been described to me over the years covering the league. There's like cliques, right? There's like Mm -hmm. three or four guys that pal around, and then these five guys are inseparable on these votes. So if Dan's got his support, but one or two of the groups, let's say, is mad at him, and they're just constantly in Goodell's ear, I could see that leading to kind of the, the rhetoric because he's trying to keep 32 people happy. He's trying to appeal and appease to all of them. Uh, and that's, I kind of think, what's happening if I had to speculate. Yeah, no, I, I, I tend to agree with that. All right, so what, what's on the table here? Let's, let's wrap up with that thought. Like, we don't think that a 24-person vote, owners-wise, is going to, like, send him out of the league. Snyder seems to be not uh, familiar with the concept of shame. And so the idea that he's going to just be like, ah, this is really embarrassing. I think I should leave, kind of like Jerry Richardson did doesn't seem to be on the table what is on the table because I, I look at like I look at like what the NFL or what the NBA did to Donald Sterling technically they just suspended him for life and that kind of defaulted the team to his estranged wife his wife sells and that's how Balmer buys the Clippers from the Sterling family um, I don't know that Tanya even if Dan winds up getting suspended for life like would sell the team they they've been made it very clear they want to pass the team down to their kids so like what is on the table here? It, do you have any idea of, of like how this plays out where there's more punishment for Snyder, but he isn't ultimately forced out, or is, is he eventually forced out? So 
obviously I need to say first, this is all utterly speculative, right? This is my guess, and I'm just one of a bunch of people with, with a guess on this. This is not informed. I believe he's going to be the owner for a long time. Like, if we played a game, who's the owner in two years, five years, ten years? My answer would be Snyder to all of those things. I think they just kind of push forward in their strategy inevitably. I'm not endorsing this, but I think it's going to be eventually things will quiet down if we can get to a point where, you know, stories aren't popping up. And I think that's they're going to kind of just try to be an unstoppable, immovable train here. Uh, what I do believe, though, is there could at some point be formal punishment that the league kind of hands over as an olive branch where maybe he is suspended or something happens and they feel like that's now a way to meet in the middle while, oh, by the way, his wife is still running the team and she's talking to you at the dinner table and, you know, Dan can still kind of feel like he's got his thing and the league can feel like they save face. That would be my best guess is that if something were to happen, this informal frankly nonsensical like he is not around except he's at every game he wants to be at he's wherever he wants to be his wife runs the team maybe something formal happens in that regard if there's another bombshell if something is found in these investigations but if you're asking me do I think he's going to be the owner of the team in 2027 I do that's that's my opinion yeah (sighs) there's a huge part of me that agrees with you and says that you're right I will also say there's like that spidey sense that just like it keeps moving forward, like it keeps moving towards it's the constant, end where man. he's yeah. where he's gone, and it's like, are we going to move this far and then just stop? And that part of me goes, I don't know what's going to be the thing that gets him. And here's the other thing that I'll, I'll say is like a closing thought: like he is so incompetent that to think that he has done the last bad thing or the last dumb thing is also foolish. And so eventually something's going to break. Like, there will be a straw that breaks the camel's back. It seems like the NFL is super invested in, in not getting to that point um, based off of the way they've acted, which is why, like, if you're like, ah, oh, life on the line, what are you betting? In five years, it's not to the owner. I'd probably agree with you. But there is something to the fact that this story keeps moving that makes me think eventually it might ultimately move the way that I think the majority of people want it to, which well, is... And let me say real quick, just as a last yeah. thought, I guess, would be... I would tend to agree more with that, but during all this Snyder storm, you have had the Stephen Ross, Mark Davis, Jerry Jones stuff. And I think each time something like that comes out, it is actually a great benefit to Snyder keeping Mm -hmm. his team. And I would also say there is, for right or for wrong, like there is a fatigue from a lot of fans and a lot of people who are quote-unquote losing hope, I suppose, that he'd have to sell the team, that sets in with, like, each one of these stories and each one of these reports, and they're not going away, where, like, once a week, once every two weeks, it's the latest thing or the latest Snyder might be out, and you can only kind of, like, try to kick the football so many times when it's pulled away before you stop swinging your leg, right? And so, I'm not, like, the stories are not going to go away. I guess my question would be, does the passion and the fervor and some of the um, like zeal for seeing something happen, for forcing the league's hand from like the fans and, and just the, the public, does that sustain itself? Because eventually a fatigue kind of sets in. Yeah, definitely. All right, Grant will have continuing coverage on this. Of course, the owners' meetings are happening this week, so we will get more reaction as a bunch of reporters are around all of the owners this week. Grant will be covering on his show, Grant and Danny, 2 to 6.30 on 106.7 The Fan. I have... Uh, I guess the early morning shift, if you not the early morning shift, the morning shift on Team 980 this week, uh, nine to noon. Uh, 
Tuesday and Wednesday. I already did the show on Monday. If you want to check that out on the Odyssey app, had some more stuff there. Uh, and other than that, Grant, we will have you back on with Logan, with your cousin, uh, at some point later in, in the lineage of this podcast to talk about something that is more fun. But in the meantime, thank you for doing this. We, we could talk to him about our family reunions uh, so that we can continue to pull the wool over one. He's actually my grandpa. Yes, yes, that will. we look forward to that. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. See you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast mother's day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones blue nile has something she'll adore need it fast most items can ship overnight Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Take Command Podcast from Odyssey Sports. All right, I've swapped out my Paulsons. Logan, back with us uh, as usual. Uh, Grant, again, appreciate him coming on. And... By the way, in between recording with Grant and Logan here, the story from John Kime broke that there is a potential or there was a land buy uh, of some sort by the commanders down in Dumfries, uh, south of D.C., obviously, uh, which feels like halfway to Richmond, but that's only in drive time. The distances are not quite. It's like 23 miles south of D.C., (laughs) but 80 miles north of Richmond, and it takes the same amount of time to drive. Um, But because that just broke and because that's still kind of developing and because we already have a bunch of stuff to talk about in today's pod, we'll talk about that story on Thursday. So we are going to talk about it this week. It will just be on Thursday. And who knows? Maybe we'll get Kime on. Uh, that's been a plan yeah. a plan of ours, and uh, we kind of were thinking around OTAs. So I know. I always go to try to speculate your guests on the air, Logan, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Well, it'd be good because it's kind of hitting all these stones, yeah, right? It's so, hitting so, the stadium, and then maybe OTAs. We will, we will talk about that story for sure. We might talk about it with John. If not, we will definitely have yeah. John on soon. So that's, yeah. the, that's the plan. But sticking with the plan that we had today, we're, we're sticking to our game plan. Uh, we thought it was good. <laughs> we learned how to game plan from Jay uh, last week, and now we're, now we're going to use it. Uh, 
we're going to talk about running backs. You did a lot of tape study yeah. this weekend uh, for some stuff, not only for this pod, but for the show. Uh, so people can yep. definitely check that out, NBC Sports Washington, et cetera. Um, but when you, first of all, again, always try to start big picture. When you break down a running back, what are some of the things, obviously, like their physical traits, but what are some of the other things that you're trying to look for in evaluating, is this guy good, great, average, not very yeah. good? So, yeah, I think obviously, like you said, the physical tools are something that with running back that kind of jump out. Again, the physicality is another thing, right? You don't want a guy that's kind of shying away from contact. But I think maybe the most important thing is like this kind of nebulous term of feel when it comes to running backs and um, kind of like how they set up runs, how they set up blocks, um, and then like how they finish runs, how they can kind of manipulate defenders with their angles and stuff. And some of that's intuitive, some of that's coaching, but that's definitely something that I really, really value because that that's like, in my opinion, and again, this is just my opinion, but maybe the, the purest trait of a running back is just kind of this, this nebulous term of feel in terms of how the run is supposed to hit how you set up the blockers with your angle and positioning. And so, yeah, that's kind of something that I've really been keeping an eye on coming out of the draft and then also uh, in this evaluation of Gibson, McKissick, and um, Robinson. Yeah, so one of the things that I used to notice when I watched tape um, and one of the things I learned very quickly was, and I, and I felt like this is obviously true in the passing game because windows are fleeting real quickly, but it, it, it seems yeah. like even more so in the running game. Like, the yep. hole is there, and then it is gone. And if you, are, if you don't time it right, if you don't set up the box right, if you don't hit the hole exactly when it opens, because if you, you can literally go frame by frame, and you're like, frame, frame, ooh, that's going to be a big hole. And then the next right. frame, there's a D tackle in there. And if you're not in there when it's opening and gone by the time it closes again, like you're, you're toast. You missed your window. And that, right. that feel thing that you're talking about is so vital for an NFL running back. So with that said, let's start our conversation. We'll just go back by back here as you evaluated them all and talk yeah. about things that you like, things that you don't, and where they fit in this offense. It's funny because Gibson's obviously the starter. He's the number one guy. You talk about feel. Right. He came in as a wide receiver out of Memphis, but he right. seems to really have developed a lot of that feel, and uh, some of the, the negatives for him are going to obviously ball security and things that I'm sure you'll get to. But what, when, you, when you went back and watched Gibson, likes, dislikes, where does he fit in this offense? Yeah, so obviously I think the thing that jumps out, kind of the first thing, first and foremost with him, is obviously his physical skill set, right? He's a big physical dude. I mean, he's 225, probably 230 pounds. He runs a 4.3. I mean, I've said this before on the podcast, but it's very rare to find someone that big and that fast with that kind of home run style. He has a physical running style for a guy that's a converted wide receiver. And so I think all those things, you just, you love that about him, right? I think the thing that really um, kind of jumps out as a negative, even even though he is getting better at it, is his just feel for runs, right? He kind of has this desire always to to bounce to space, right? He always wants to kind of bounce around the tackles block on the edge because he is fast, he is big, he can get there. But like you were talking about, so let's see if we can do this. And I'm probably going to need your help here, Craig. But like, you know, the tackle is blocking out on a defensive end. Like mm -hmm. if you're going to the left side, he's going to kind of kick the defensive end out. So we're running, so we're running a wide a wide zone or a toss or something yeah. that's a wide run to the left. Your, your left tackle's out as a lead blocker trying to kick that defensive out. Basically, if his job is mission accomplished, he actually runs him all the way to the sideline. Correct. Out of the way. And, and so obviously like the back is, is responsible for keeping the defensive end with his hat outside or towards the sideline. So he's going to attack the tackles outside shoulder and kind of keep that position, right? And then you've got to know if there's a three technique, which is someone over the guard, that that next gap, that B gap, the gap inside the tackle is going to be closed. And you're probably anticipating cutting it all the way back to the A gap because the nose 
is going to be on the other side of the center. So like front side A is where that run is going to hit. But you have to sell it to the tackle and then kind of cut it back. He, Gibson, does not have a good feel for that kind of stuff, right? And as the year went on, like you watched the Giants game and I saw runs that would make Kyle Shanahan blush. They were so perfect in terms of angle, anticipating the cutback and knowing when it's going to happen. But early in the year, like Green Bay comes to mind, like he's just kind of running into the backs of the offensive linemen and he's not doing enough to kind of, with his angle and his positioning, set up the blocks, bring the second level to the offensive line. Because like this is something that you learn in the NFL. It's not always the offensive lineman's fault. Like those safeties, mm-hmm. those linebackers, those defensive linemen are so athletic. The back needs to help you. And like when you watch like uh you know Green Bay's offense, when you watch San Francisco's offense, even when you watch LA's offense, right? And hopefully Minnesota now, and even last year Minnesota, because they ran a lot outside zone, the back is so good at bringing the defenders to the blocker and then cutting off, right? So oftentimes you'll see Gibson maybe cut a little bit early or he'll cut a little bit late and ends up running into the guy or cutting and then the, the linebacker can see it and then make the tackle. I yeah. will say, like I said, in the in the New York game specifically, you saw an evolution and then against Tampa Bay, you saw a really nice evolution of that skill set. So I'm excited to see him this year. You know, I think he grew a little bit in that capacity and obviously they coached him more and obviously they kind of were leaning a little bit more outside zone, it felt like, in the games where he did well. And that kind of lends itself to that returner kind of mentality. But again, there is a little bit of prep that goes into making sure you know you can kind of anticipate that cut as opposed to just straight react to it. And you know right. a little bit about that. Yeah, no, yeah. definitely. And, and I think that to, to really simplify it down, right, you've got to sell it to the defense that you're trying to get yeah. to the sideline. Like, that Correct. is that is exactly what you need to do as a back. You need to... Like, you basically need to try to get to the sideline. And if, you know, all of a sudden, if that defensive end is super slow and you get the edge, then, like, okay, you got the edge. Um, But really what you're trying to do is is get them to sell themselves outside, wash open a hole in the middle, and be able to to go. It it is a one-cut kind of scheme. Um, And and, I think a lot of times, like, to elaborate on that point, is, like, when you see Gibson get to the sideline, I think a lot of fans say, oh, like, look at his speed. But if he has to bubble or lose ground to Mm -hmm. get there – that means he missed a cut on the inside. And I think that's something you see a lot from him. Again, like that makes sense. He's a, he's a returner. He's a space player. He's trying to find space. And when you're running, it looks like there's all this green grass out there. But NFL defenses are too fast for that, right? So you have right. to learn how to kind of go one gap at a, a time. You know, C gap, B gap, A gap, A gap, B gap, C gap. And sometimes you're cutting all the way back to the backside C. And he just, he's growing in that capacity. And if he can figure that out, he, he could be the best running back in the NFL. Now, that's a big leap from where he's at right. right now in terms of vision and anticipation and understanding. But I, in terms of physical skill set, very similar to Jamin a little bit in this way, right? Like extremely high upside. Like when you watch me, like, man, there's only a handful of guys on earth that can do this. And again, his production's better than Jamin, obviously. But right. that's the kind of, that's the issue right now is his intuition at the position is not quite there yet. Right. And I mean, I got to watch Adrian Peterson do that in his couple of years here. Yeah. And like, there's nobody better at, at understanding that tempo and that patience of just like when to, when to put your foot in the ground and go. And he just would, yeah. would ride it out, ride it out, ride it out, and then get upfield and be gone. And I mean, obviously you talk about him in his prime in Minnesota, you did that to the tune of 2000 yards, but even when he was here, yeah. like that's how he was still a thousand yard back. He just understood uh, how to read it and, and you know getting to watch film at times with, with Clinton Portis it, it, I, I would pick Clinton's brain on kind of what he saw yeah. what's he looking at and it's the ability to just like you said like 
they're literally saying, can I get that hat on the outside? Can I get the helmet of the player that I'm trying to read on the right side of the tackle uh, yeah. or the guard or the center that I, this is my lead blocker who is my read for this particular play? Like, that is right. how you make those decisions. And it's, you know, good defensive linemen know that too, by the way. And they'll, they'll wrong hat. They, they'll know that yeah. they'll leverage it on one side and just stick their helmet on the other. So it, it becomes like this very intricate game, uh, which looks like on TV and- just a pile of bodies running into each other. But, like, there is a lot that goes into that position from an – uh, a read and react intellect standpoint. Yeah, and it happens in the blink of an eye. And obviously, right. there's some run. There, there's some com- schematic stuff. I think that they could improve to help him out. Like mm-hmm. I feel like he does better with straight outside zone as opposed to a lot of tight zone, where it's very. It's those like you talk about how fast those decisions happen. Like with the tight zone stuff, it's even quicker. You know, yeah. gap seam scope. It's even quicker. So uh, you know, I'd like to see them kind of maybe lean into that more. I, I talked to a couple coaches around the building, and they were like, you know, we're going to try and get to more of that. We feel like. You know, with Bates's skill set at tight end, that we could maybe get there with Cosme's speed on the edge. Leno's a veteran. You know what I mean? And those pieces weren't necessarily kind of established last year. So maybe that happens and maybe they feel really good about it. But, you know, I think even at guard, right, with Sadiq Charles and Wes Schweitzer, and obviously those guys are rotational pieces now, but those guys are classic outside zone guards. So it'd be cool to see if they could get something like that going. Yeah, and outside zone's a pretty easy one to, to pull your play action game off of too. So yeah, right. um, that's that that marries well with a, a West Coast passing game uh, and some of the stuff that goes in there. Uh, all right, so that's that's Gibson and a lot of the yep. fundamentals of the position. McKissick yeah. obviously becomes a incredible versatile weapon. What do right. you see from him? And because I feel like he's someone who does more than like as much as he does, he actually does more than people realize. Yeah, so I think when you're watching McKissick, and again, like his season was cut short last year, so there wasn't like this great sample size. But one of the things I think if I was going to kind of articulate Gibson in like a sentence, it would be like he is the modern running back. And what I mean by that is he's a tremendous receiver, right? Running backs now, like I think if you look at Tom Brady in New England, right, when he had White and some of these other guys, Amendola, no, not Amendola, who's the running back? The Anyway, the white uh, dude who played in San Rex Diego Burkhead. for a little bit. Rex Burkhead, there was another guy too, but like those kind of shifty pass catching backs. Oh, I know who you're talking about. Uh, Danny Whitehead. Danny Whitehead, thank you. Like those guys are a very unique skill set because they can win on third down and they can beat a beat a linebacker in a one on one situation. So I think McKissick gives you that. I think Gibson, everyone thinks of him as like this converted wide receiver. He's not quite twitched up the same way as McKissick. Like McKissick can run the choice, and we talked about with Jay how important running that choice route is on third down, and you saw McKissick win on that route a couple times last year. Again, that out and up versus the New York Giants week two, you know, like only a handful of running backs can get that done at a high level, and he did that. And so his route running ability, his ability to win in space, like there was a smoke route that he caught, which is like a one-step and stop Mm -hmm. that he caught against Tampa Bay where he makes a quarter miss and runs for – uh, 12 yards and then they're short but then he's able to convert the ne- the very next down on a choice route you know what i'm saying like having a guy who can win in space really twitched up not a bad runner uh, you know i think he got better as the year went on like there was times early in the year where he was having a hard time keeping his balance i think he got out of that as the year went on and, and kind of found his footing a little bit but i think what he really excels and what he really brings to the offense is just it gives you a tell like you know i think uh, jay talked about this on the podcast also like mm-hmm. how offenses are looking for uh tells defensive tells right so when i line up with logan thomas and uh, mckissick to the right side of the formation and i get uh two corners over them i know that it's not necessarily like man-to-man coverage and i'm giving the quarterback information and intel and if they match up with linebackers and safeties i understand that hey it's man-to-man coverage 
what which side do I want to work versus man, or can I even check to a better man beater, which is a lot of times what you're trying to do, and why, why you bring in a guy like Carson Wentz, a guy with a ton of experience. So I think that's why he is so tremendously valuable. And, you know, a lot of people think of him as a third down back, but you know, as a guy who likes NFL offenses and is looking around the league, like that is a piece that becomes very, very, very valuable, you know, in terms of finding mismatches, helping dictate coverages. And then, like, it's like kind of like we talked about with the receivers and, like, Curtis Samuel. He just makes it harder for defenses to match up with the correct personnel. And that's why I think he's so tremendously valuable. Right. When you can when you can have a running back on the field and then line up in four or five wide or yeah. have, you know, in Samuel's case, line up with no running or break the huddle with no running backs and then run the ball – um, right. out of a traditional set like the defense is not going to be prepared for that from a personnel standpoint nevertheless from an execution standpoint right um i i i did not go back and watch like you did or obviously over this mm-hmm. weekend but i i have memories of last year of mckissick doing some actual good running inside yeah. and that's when i was yeah. referencing earlier um saying like i feel like he does actually more than people realize everyone's like oh he's in the game he's a great pass catcher yeah. and occasionally he'll run it and whatever but i feel like he got he had some good inside carries last year which is a huge thing because often when he's in the game defenses are expecting to get spread out they have that smaller personnel in in fact they probably from a spatial standpoint are spread out a little bit and so if yeah. you can run it in between the tackles as that third down back like that's something that's really really valuable yeah, 100%. I think, you know, like I mentioned, he, as the year got on, he got better with that. And, like, I remember the touchdown he had against Seattle, which is, like, was on a single back power, tight end blocks down, uh, flowers pulls, does a great job setting up that block, cutting back inside. You know, like, he has a great feel. He had a nice run against Buffalo, which was early in the year. But, again, like, uh, you know, against uh, the Broncos, had a couple of nice runs. You know what I mean? He's, he's, a, he's a very good football player. I think his twitch and his level of, like, suddenness in short area – lends itself to that skill set, you know, and I think as long as he's kind of his feet are under him, so to speak, I think he's very good in that area. And I think that I think he does well for his size. And again, he's not the best pass protector in the whole world, but he's good in pass protection, you know, and so Mm -hmm. having a guy who can line up in the backfield, know who to block and is physical and attacks those protections, I think is something that Gibson has struggled with and that most young running backs struggle with. But again, that's another skill set that he brings. He's just kind of a solid pro with like kind of this big play potential. So I think, yeah, he's, um, it's it's a very nice asset for this football team for sure. How was Gibson in pass pro last year? Because I feel like he was Not good. decent later in the year, like when he had more Maybe. opportunities, um, and obviously had more responsibility because they kind of had to because right. McKissick was out, but not not good. I probably should have watched all of his pass protections, but I kind of watched like when I, like, it's hard. So like, you watch all of his touches, you watch all of his drops, you watch all of his catches. It's hard mm. to categorize pass protections the same way. Um, but he did have like a they have like a cut up of like positive plays, and he just doesn't seem to. I think he knows what he's doing. If I were to, if I you know from watching it, he knows what he's doing. He just sometimes doesn't have like the the mindset, you know, and like not everyone has the mindset in pass protection. Like it's it's a very um, it's a very physical process. Like if you've ever been to a mini camp, mini camp or a training camp, excuse me, oh, and yeah. they do like one-on-one pass rush, like mm-hmm. it is a violent deal. And you got to kind of come with that mindset. And I think if anything, like, you know, from people who convert from receiver to tight end, receiver to fullback, receiver to running back, whatever it is, like the physicality is just a different thing in there, right? And so I think that's something like, in addition to that feel for the position, like adjusting to the physicality. Obviously, he's a tremendously physical runner, but that's it's just harder in, in a pass protection setting. Like I remember, I was pretty physical in line, 
but like I had to learn how to be a physical pass protector from off the ball because there was a couple of protections where you had to be like in the backfield. It's just there's space, there's movement, there's you're kind of walking this ballet with the tackle, not trying to bump them off. And then when the guy comes, you have to be ready to like collision forcibly and stop his rush. So I think right. that's part of the uh, part of the challenge. With, it's with, it's harder again, when they have a head start. Like, correct. You know, and, when you're, you're on, when you're in line or you're, you're pass pro inside as an offensive lineman, like you guys are both starting from a three point stance. Yeah, you're right there. Stance you're and there. Four point yeah. stance. You pick your stance, but you're right there. And the collision is instant. When you're in the backfield, that dude is running at you and you're like, Oh boy, here we go. Yeah. And you got yeah, to stand you gotta ground. Understand the, you understand the rusher. And then you got to like, again, even the contact is different than in line stuff, right? It's like, you got to like power clean into a person and understand that space and that distance in a very specific way. So it's not, this is not a criticism of Gibson because it's something very challenging, but it's an area that I think he could definitely improve in. And I think McKissick has a good feel for that. And he's not the biggest guy in the world, so he loses from a size standpoint sometimes. But in terms of mindset, I think he's got it. And that makes you feel good about him protecting it, the pass. If we ever want to go deep on that, we'll get Chris Thompson on because that dude yeah. was as good as any, especially small back. Um, yeah. I mean, he went six years without missing an assignment i remember he missed one yeah. in the game and i went to him in the locker room afterwards that week and i was like did you miss that one he's like yeah man it was my first one i was like oh wow. that sucks yeah, he's like he's yeah all soft i mean it was, like it was that, wild yeah. and then i mean look not to be like super downtrodden and depressing but like yeah chris gets hurt the year that alex gets hurt and yeah. it is a missed running back pass protection that is the hit that you know changes alex smith's yeah, yeah. life and so yeah. that stuff is, I mean, from a safety for your quarterback standpoint, like those are big hits if you're if you're running back misses. And so, um, super 100%. important skill set to to. It, I mean, look, if you're not great at it, but you get something, at least you prevent the big one. But if yeah. you completely miss and you don't know what you're doing, like that's obviously a big deal. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, last but not least, let's talk Robinson. about the rookie, Brian yeah, Robinson Jr. Yeah. So you know we had to like rank positions and. I had the running backs in my top three positions to kind of keep an eye on. And a big part of it, it's because he's here, you know, Robinson's here. And that just, again, he was one of my favorite backs in terms of fit for the commanders in the draft process. And a big reason why is he's just, he's a runner. He's a pure runner. Like all those kind of intangible, weird, flaky qualities we talked about, like feel and all that, you know, like how to make a guy, you know, miss and short, all that kind of stuff. Like he excels at that stuff. Now he's Mm -hmm. not, you know, the best athlete in the entire world. He's not, um, you know, he doesn't catch the ball great out of the backfield, but as a runner, like he was one of the funnest guys to watch. Like the first guy never tackles. I mean, it's not like he's bowling guys over like a truck. Like he'll, he'll set a guy up with a good angle. He knows how to put his foot down hard in the ground, make a cut. And I just think he's going to add a ton of value because a lot of those kind of misses that McKissick and Gibson have, you know, as runners, um, he's not going to have. He's going to hit those out of the park, right? He's just got a great feel for kind of right. They call it riding the wave. Like as the O line is pushing past, right? Kind of knowing where that soft spot is and cramming in. So instead of where you get that Gibson kind of running into the back of the offensive line, he knows kind of like, no, that's not where the crease is. It's one more gap back, and I can fit in here in a nice way. And again, that's awesome. And then he's also a very physical. He's a big man. I met him today in the uh in the in the in the lobby of the the facility today he's a big dude and he runs like a big man you know he's got a physical violent running style to him but it's not like again it's not like he's all that's he's not like a one-trick pony right he's got enough foot speed enough short area quickness where he can kind of set you up with a good angle cut inside set up an arm tackle 
make a guy. It's it's fun to watch him run. It's fun to watch his process. And, you know, I know he went to Alabama, and a lot of people say he's played by the best offensive line in the country, but he makes a lot out of even dirty runs, you know, runs where there's guys in the backfield because he's got such a good feel. Like, I think John put some stuff up on his Instagram, which is great, in the Georgia game where, you know, there's a little bit of leakage inside. He knows how to press it a little bit, maybe an extra step farther. The, the guy who's on the blitz steps wide. He's able to cut inside for like a three-yard gain. And that is a big deal to have that skill set. It makes your offensive line better. makes your play pass game better. It makes you have to put more guys in the box. And again, I think it's a nice, I think the, the question becomes is like, how does he fit in with Gibson? Like, what does the rotation look like, right. given that he's such a natural run- runner? And that, that was going to be where I end up is like, all right, those are, that's, that's what they all can do. Now, how do they right. all fit? McKissick's the easy one. He's on third down. Gibson's right. obviously going to get the lion's share of, of snaps here. But how do you go about rotating those three guys in? And, by the way, Robinson, special teams? Yes? No? That's, the, that's the another good question about him is, like, I don't know. Like, so what's interesting is we were talking – I was talking about this with Santana today on the show is, like, you know, everyone's talking about um, – uh, Jahan and whether he's going to return punts. I think the guy who might end up returning punts is Gibson, right? I think because like he's going to lose a lot of carries, right? And if you watch his film, like he's his best when you get to get him the ball in space, right? Or give him kind of a direction. And he seems like a, has a skill set to be like a natural punt slash kick returner. And, you know, after watching Brian Robinson and all of his film and all of his senior, like I watched so much film on that guy because I really liked watching him. Like, I think there's a good chance he comes in and is kind of the bell cow. You know, not like he's not going to take all the carries, obviously, but he gets 12, Gibson gets eight type of thing, right? So where do you kind of aggregate those other four or five touches for Gibson? Why not let him get some touches as a special teams player, right? And I think that makes Gibson better because it gets him touches again in in space and with these opportunities to use that athleticism, use that size, use that speed, and um, and let Brian Robinson, like, hit a whole bunch of doubles and singles for you on first and second down. And I think that's something that uh, I would definitely keep an eye on. I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye on at OTAs throughout training camp through the preseason because, like, the in terms of feel, I was trying to think the the guy that might have been better than him was Bryce Hall, Brees Hall, excuse me, from Iowa State, who went in the second round to the Jets, right? And like, that's the kind of intangible quality that this guy has in terms of playing the running back position. So I'm super excited for the team because I think he's going to add a ton of value. It'll just be interesting to see how that room shakes out. That would be really interesting considering how heavy Gibson's workload was last year. Yeah. This dude was getting 25, 30 touches a game. And right. so if he were to go from that to like 12 to 15 right. with only 10 carries or so a game, 8 to 10 carries with some other catches, some punt returns, et cetera, that would be a really interesting turn, and, but also not necessarily the worst thing. Um, we see how right. quickly running backs burn out in this league. Could that help get some longevity out of him and also maximize his use in each and every game? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Take Command Podcast here on Odyssey Sports. Uh, let's wrap up with our Monday mailbag. It's, it's a quick one this week, Logan. We got time for one question, but I really like this one. Joe asks, what is the difference in roles and responsibilities between regular nickel and buffalo nickel? <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny because I was grinding the tape. I had a question from somebody at work who said, what's the difference? So I'm like studying the tape. I'm watching all their nickel snaps. And I'm like, I don't know. That kind of looks the same, right? Kind of looks the same, like the same role. Maybe the situation's a little bit different. Maybe landing the Buffalo nickels in, in kind of like a first and second down capacity, right? Is but it just like, sen- hey, you're a safety. And if, if we have a corner playing, it's regular nickel. And if you're playing, it's Buffalo. Is that it? In terms of assignment, like, and I, so I went and asked the DB coach and I was like, you know, Hey, like, what's the difference? You know, to my eye, they're very, very similar. He goes, it's the same. You just want a different body type in there. Like, cause like you don't want, you know, you don't want Kendall Fuller having a fit of run on a, on a fullback or a pulling tight end or something like that. Like Landon's body and his skill set and his mindset is more conducive to that. Right. So he can also, you know, again, everyone thinks it's like this run stopping role or this blitzing role, but you know, coach was very complimentary of Landon. He said, Oh, you know, he can carry number two if it's a receiver and he's physical enough to fit that run game. He's kind of that perfect in between player. Right. And I think that that's what kind of characterizes the Buffalo element of the nickel, as opposed to just a pure nickel who would come in in a traditional kind of it's three wide receiver. You know, you only have like your Wanda, your, your weak side run, your pop and your draw to kind of fit like Landon has a better intelligence and a better, better physicality to kind of play nickel on a first and second town kind of kind of capacity while also bringing that coverage element that a safety or a bigger body kind of uh, back end player would bring. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense because you're kind of either stuck in it, – it's a, it's a hybrid between your base and your nickel, right? Right, right. It's absolutely. a way to – you know, if, if you're in your base and it's you have three linebackers and your nickel, you have two safeties and three corners and two linebackers, now all of a sudden you're like, all right, well, let's, let's kind of split that difference. And in the modern NFL offense – uh, or against modern NFL offenses that do a lot of the stuff that we were just talking about with the versatility of all these different guys. Like, you know, what do you do with a Debo Samuel? What do you do with a Curtis Samuel? What do you do with a J.D. McKissick? What do you do with all these versatile guys around the league that could line up at running back, could line up at receiver, are always in motion, jet sweeps? Like, from a personnel standpoint, how do you treat them? Like, if J.D. McKissick a former college wide receiver who runs great routes and will absolutely yeah. smoke your linebackers and probably a lot of your safeties um, is going to break the huddle and line up at wide receiver and run a wide receiver route. You having a, uh, a, a non-coverage player, let's call them yeah. on, on that guy, like doesn't help you. But all of a sudden, yeah. if you, if you are like, okay, well we'll stick a corner out there on him. Yeah. We bring in that extra small DB then yeah. he lines up in the backfield, you're screwed. So it's another right. like great way to match up with these modern NFL offenses to have answers built into some of the questions that an offense might ask of you. And so if he breaks, you break the huddle and you're facing the commanders and you have a Buffalo nickel player on your defense um, yep. and J.D. McKissick is in the backfield, you can kind of align yourself based off run and go all through your checks that way and almost treat yeah. that player as a linebacker. If he splits out wide and all of a sudden you're in a, in a four-receiver kind of look, then you're you ready to, to get it. into you your checks you, your, and, and whatever that you do for that and, and have a, cover, a player who's comfortable in coverage inside slot 
play that role. And so yeah. um, that's really smart. Um, yeah, really. It, but also, like, if you if you have a player like Landon who's smart and understands the base principles of your defense and where everyone's supposed to be, it also seems like it's a pretty easy transition. Yeah, and also like it just gives you some kind of like a you know like some movable like a shell game, right? Like who's playing Buffalo nickel, who's playing safety, right? Because Cam Curl did it a little bit last year too, right? So again, it's just a nice piece that you can move around and you know not tip your hand, not tip your coverage hand. I think that's really important. And again, like it's it's a special person that can cover at a at a high level and also fit some of these more complicated run schemes. So I think that that's kind of what you're looking at with regards to. Um, you know, with regards to that Buffalo nickel position, it's, it's, it's very similar to like a normal nickel. You might make a couple, like you might, you know, major in quarters as opposed to cover three or whatever the the situation mm-hmm. is, but it's very, very similar to, to the nickel. I think the question now becomes is who steps in and fills that role because Landon was such a unique skill set. Right. And that's, that's what I was going to ask next. Like, I know you're super high as we, we talked about. If you want to go back to, I think it was episode one, we went through the draft class and yeah. um, you can hear Logan talk uh, a lot uh, and say lots of nice things about Percy Butler. Um, but is he the guy? Is it, is it Derek Forrest? Is it, do they shift things around and it's Cam Curl? Yeah. Like who, who are the, the candidates? And, and if you're looking at, if we're looking at it going into OTAs, who's the guy you expect to take the first rep when they break the huddle in that sub package? Yeah, so I think I think they're going to try and give it to Butler. I think they want Curl to play the play safety. I think they want him to kind of have a home and be the captain of the defense, someone that doesn't have to come off the field necessarily and have him yeah. learn one thing. So if Percy Butler could do that, that'd be great. But I do think it's between him and Cam Curl. Like if Percy, for whatever reason, shows that he can't get it done or he's uh, you know physically he's not big enough or whatever it might be, I think he can do it. I think it's like again just a different body type than Landon, for example. And, you know, like the coaches, they, they believe that he can get it done. And I get why. When you watch his tape, you feel really good about it. So, um, but I think if he can't get it done, then it becomes Cam Curl. And then Butler moves to the post. Um, and then maybe Cam Curl and him rotate out in certain situations. But I think that's kind of what I would be keeping an eye on. You know, there's all these, like, different position situations you keep an eye on. Like, I'm keeping an eye on the offensive line. And also the Buffalo nickel. Because I think that that is something that could easily... Um, like reveal itself like very early in the OTA process in terms of who's getting the reps, who's getting like kind of the most looks at a certain spot. And right now I think it's going to be Butler or tomorrow it'll be Butler. And um, I think that's something that I'm excited to watch and during this uh, off season program. Yep. Which as you just said, starts tomorrow, open to the media tomorrow. So on Thursday's pod, we will have a full reaction from week one of OTAs. Also have more on that stadium story that we mentioned broke during this. Uh, Thanks again to Grant for coming on and talking about the Snyder story, the ownership stuff at the start of the podcast. Uh, Logan, great to be with you as always, my friend. And uh, we will talk to you guys next week. If you want more from us, uh, make sure you are following along on Instagram at Logan underscore Paulson 82. I'm at Craig underscore Hoffman. I'm on Twitter at Craig Hoffman. We're going to leave the Logan Twitter experience, Twitter experiment alone, uh, which can, it's 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 an experiment and um you know not all experiments work out i mean i'm not i'm not i just I'm like i don't know if i have the bandwidth for it we'll see i mean i'm not saying no but i'm not saying yeah, yes it's okay it, like i you know i think it's important that a big tough football player like you is like you know what i'm gonna respect my own boundaries and my own bandwidth <laughs> i think that's a prime example that you've set for society logan paulson <laughs> and with that we'll see you thursday i'm taking it